You look like a fine group tonight. I'm glad to be here. Just to let you know that Kathy and I uh, came to Tennessee to join this church. We didn't know where this church was, but now we do. And we're, we're so glad that you've allowed us to be a part of yourselves. Uh, we value our, our presence here at this church. So, um, I will begin with, uh, with this standalone message. Uh, I think if, uh, when, when I get back to First Peter in a couple of weeks, it will be one or two sessions and, and will be completed with, with Peter. And depending on the pastor and the elders, uh, I'll know which direction I'm going to be going. But I've enjoyed the last year. Uh, we've been in First Peter for one year. Uh, so we'll come to a conclusion, uh, I think, in two sessions. Tonight, I'm going to take a short break from Peter and resume, like I said, in a couple of weeks. Instead, tonight, we will be looking into the Epistle of James. Before we start, I would like to give you a little background on his epistle. The author of the epistle was very likely the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Uh, many, many good commentators draw that conclusion. There's some controversy, but I'm in agreement. I think he was. James, along with the other half-brothers of Jesus, did not initially believe that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Can you imagine growing up with a perfect brother? That's what they did. <laughs> so later, uh, James came to believe that Jesus was indeed Israel's Messiah. Eventually, James became the primary leader in the Jerusalem church, and he remained in that position until his martyrdom in about A.D. 62. The epistle itself was written by James from Jerusalem sometime between A.D. 44 and 49, making it most probably the first of the New Testament books to be written. So we're going to read the text. It's a little long. Uh, it comes as a unit. It's all about the tongue, speech. Uh, so I'm going to read the whole text, but there's only, I think, four verses that we'll, we'll delve into deeper. So, uh, let us read the text. Please turn in your Bible to... James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I'm using my, uh, my New King James Bible. By the way, some of my references are from the NASB, but I'll be reading from the uh, New King James. Picking up at verse 1, chapter 3. James is, is writing, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word or what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, can you hear me? My wife said, make sure that you speak loud enough. So I have a tendency to speak low. So I'll go ahead and finish here. Uh, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, 
We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature or our lives. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. That is, on his own. So it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With, a web, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we cause we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God or in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things not ought to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. In uh, these 12 verses, James personifies the human tongue as a representative of human depravity. So when he speaks of tongue, he's talking of speech, which comes from the heart. So. And he echoed the scriptural truth that the human mouth is a focal point and vivid indication of man's fallenness and sinful heart condition. Therefore, the title, Taming the Tongue. Human speech has the power to influence people to commit great evil and great rebellion against God. Human speech can also glorify God and communicate the truth of Scripture, especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. My goal here is to look more closely at what James has written about the human tongue, and more precisely, what he has written in light of the believer's responsibility to the Word of God in that context. I kind of front-loaded this from my own, my own problem with, I, when I was really young, I, I, man, my mouth wouldn't stop, and I would say things that were hurtful. And so I've always looked at this text uh, in a kind of a different way that it was talking about me, front-loaded, me, right? So don't feel like I'm singling anybody out. <laughs> we, we all have this issue. Uh, James begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 with what seems to be, at least at first, a perplexing cautionary statement. He writes, and I quote, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. 
His reasoning for this statement appears to be from two sources. Uh, the first is our fallen human nature, even among redeemed who are being changed. And the second is the magnitude of the responsibility before God in both understanding and ministering the word of God before the body of Christ, the church. It's mainly pastor, teachers, elders. Uh, these cautionary words by James in verse 1 are directed to, he says, my brethren, men are, who are fellow believers in Jesus Christ and potential teachers and preachers. Teaching and preaching both involve ministering the word of God and, con and concerns the things of God. By giving the caution, James, when he says, let not many of you become teachers, James is not discouraging believers from communicating scriptural truth, nor is he limiting in any way those who are genuinely called by God in the office of teacher or preacher. What he is saying is that those who believe they are called by God should first test their faith to be sure they are saved. James has further made clear in chapter 1, verse 26 of his epistle, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is worthless. He says worthless. But remember that at, at that time of his writing, James is likely the only New Testament book. The Old Testament scriptures were important, as well as firsthand witnesses of Christ's teaching and crucifixion and resurrection. Within just a few years, many New Testament scriptures would be written and New Testament doctrine would become more available in local churches throughout the known world. We know from New Testament scripture that God's will is for all his people to articulate his biblical truth as accurately and as comprehensively as they are able. Now, women have different roles than men. That's, that's a given here. But we are, if you're a believer, you have that responsibility. So do I. Jesus said in his great commission, all Christians are called to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When he said that, there was no New Testament. So making disciples at that point was based on what Jesus taught. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. I believe a brother, for a brother to minister the word of God before his, capital H, church, is one of the greatest accountabilities before God he will ever experience in this earthly life. In these 12 verses of chapter 3, James is refining our understanding of the great, great responsibility 
God places on the ones he calls to teach and preach in the office of pastor teacher. And this church is truly blessed in that regard. But the responsibility also extends to those who may teach or preach and are not called to an official uh, office in a local church. James also writes in verse one, teachers will incur stricter judgment. So what is he saying? This kind of judgment is one that will be more strict on those ministering the word of God than those uh, with giftings other than teaching or preaching. The phrase stricter judgment used by James means a greater degree of importance in judgment or more culpability in judgment. I believe that the judgment James is referring to is sometimes called the judgment seat of Christ. This is a judgment of believers for rewards, not based on, on sin, it's for rewards, based on gifts by the Holy Spirit for service and obedience to Christ and his word. James must be telling the church that the ministry of the word of God by teaching and preaching is a work that carries with it a greater degree of importance in the administration of rewards by Jesus Christ himself. Paul helps us understand this judgment in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. He writes, verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Let me back up just a second. We have to deal with this part of judgment in order to understand the rest of what he has to say about the tongue and speech. So just to let you know. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, that's the believer's judgment of rewards, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. This isn't the lake of fire. This is, this is the fire of God's discerning judgment. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he is built on, on it, that's the foundation of Christ, he re uh, remains, if that remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up or burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire or judgment. In Revelation 22:12, Jesus gives us a, a, a strong inference that the judgment mentioned in verse one by James, he didn't, He's not referring directly to that, but, but what James says of judgment, it's, it's not because of sin. Jesus said, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5.10 also adds more understanding to this judgment. He, he wrote, for we, that's believers, must all appear 
Everyone, all of us, if you're born again, you'll appear before Christ for that judgment seat. Uh, for we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, whether good or bad. Now the good or bad referred to here by the Apostle Paul, it does not mean moral opposites. That's not it. Matters of believer's sin uh, have been completely dealt with by the death of the Savior as our substitute on the cross. Rather, Paul is comparing eternally valuable activities, good, of the Christian as opposed to useless activities of the Christian, bad. Paul's point is not that we should not enjoy earthly things, not at all, but that God should be glorified in them. Uh, and that we should spend most of our energy and time with the things that have eternal value. So remember, all true believers will be resurrected with a glorified body. And our eternally glorified state will only be because of God's mercy and grace given to us, not performing good or bad. Uh, however, Hebrews 11, 35 definitely implies that there will be distinctions in each believer's resurrection. I didn't realize this early on, but I believe it now. Uh, regarding the early church, many believers suffered for their faith in Jesus Christ and were martyred. And the author of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, uh, says, quote, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. To my understanding, better, rec resu better resurrection would likely refer to rewards. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.8 said, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but will receive his, but each will receive his own reward that is from Christ himself, according to his own labor. James brings the fact of the believer's judgment to light in the very first verse of our text. But the vast writings of Paul is much more explicit regarding the judgment seat of Christ for believers. And I think that is the judgment Jesus referred to uh, James referred to in, uh, in verse 1. It is apparent that, that Paul has a genuine desire for believers to understand the reality they will face, uh, the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. Let me back up and say that again. I missed something. <laughs> uh, it is apparent that Paul has a desire for believers to understand the reality that they will face the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. I missed a word. It really does matter because it involves our eternity in heaven with our Lord. Now I know that the crowns will be given to Christ, but you can't take away the fact that they were, they were worked for. 
James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many things. He's talking to believers, we all do. Uh, there are some sins a believer may not commit simply because he does not have the opportunity. But there is no limit to what one may do in sinning with his own tongue in speech. This is why James could write in verse 2, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. He's saying a lot here that I, I don't fully comprehend, but uh, I think part of what he's saying is that there's no such thing as a perfect, sinless man prior to the resurrection. And uh, so you have to take it in that light. In scripture, we see the tongue mostly described in negative terms like wicked, deceitful, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, foolish, and the list goes on. I only wrote down a few of them. Uh, the use of the tongue concerns James as he mentions it nine times in this short epistle. In our text, he uses the tongue as a test of genuine faith because it will demonstrate by a person's, be demonstrated by a person's speech. The tongue is used by the heart to say what's in the heart. The relationship between faith and works is revealed in a person's speech. The very first sin committed after the fall in the Garden of Eden was by the tongue. When Adam was questioned by God about his eating of the forbidden fruit, Adam suggested that God himself was indirectly responsible, slandering God. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, get it, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me to eat from the tree. That was his speech. That was his tongue saying that. That was very sinful. God had nothing to do with what Adam and Eve did. When a person genuinely comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is converted, there comes a change in that person's speech. You work on it for a long time, but there does come definitely a change. <laughs> The change is the ongoing result of becoming a new creation in Christ. His whole being is transformed and continues to be transformed by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells that person. Again, verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Stumble is a, uh, a word for, as you might be ascending a staircase and you trip over a step. It's, it's synonymous to, to falling into sin at times or almost falling into sin. And perfect here is, is a, a word in the, the original that means completed, teleos. It's completed or finished and we know we're not completed yet. We are being redeemed, and when we have our resurrected bodies, we'll be completed at that point. So, 
In other words, entire sanctification only comes in our resurrected, glorified bodies, not an excuse because we still have a responsibility in how we use our tongue and our speech. In the meanwhile, our tongues are in the process of being sanctified as well. James is saying that the mature Christian, while not in sinless perfection, is able to control his body if able to control his tongue. In verse 3, James used the illustration of a bit to control a horse. I do know a little bit about him. I had horses for 30 years. And uh, just to kind of give you a little idea of where he's headed, uh, the bit for a horse that's being trained uh, oftentimes is, if especially if they're resistant, is a, a bit that's hard on their tongue. But if a horse, like my horse, learns really quick, uh, you don't even have to use a bit. You could use a snaffle bit, but I used to go out and find her and just jump on her back and, and, and bring her back with her mane so, or my feet. So a trained tongue for a Christian should be that way. They should be changing. So in verse, uh, uh, it is interesting to note that the bit does rest on the horse's tongue and controlling the horse's body is by the pressure of the bit on the tongue. Verse, in verse four, we are given the example of a large ship being controlled by a small rudder. James asserts a remarkable truth. He states that a believer in Jesus Christ can bridle his tongue, who can bridle his tongue is also able to bridle the whole body as well. This does not mean sinless perfection. It appears that the body in this context refers to uh, the person in a general sense, to his whole being. To say it another way, if a Christian can control the tongue or his speech, which is so predisposed to sin, then gaining control of other sin in our lives should follow. It is important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit must be involved in the whole process of mastering the tongue. I don't know if you've ever met someone that claims to have been a Christian for many, many years, but their, their, their tongue is in the gutter. And you have to question, was it real, a, a real life-changing event that took place in their lives? So. Uh, when Isaiah viewed God's glory and holiness in Isaiah 6-5, it's a good example. He was convicted of his own sin and immediately saw sin in his mouth, saying, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. His speech was unclean, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So as soon as Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he realized the depravity of his own speech because God's holiness was the standard and he knew it right away. Isaiah 6, 6 and 7 continues, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, 
which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged or to get rid of. So we know that the Holy Spirit has a major role in sanctifying our tongues. Uh, and as we live out our lives, we will, uh, we will see that change. If we don't, we have to go before the Lord and examine ourselves. So James 3.8 says, no man can tame the tongue. In verse 8, he says, no man can do it. He's talking about a man by himself. Um, a well-known commentator uh, that I read, he said, if the Holy Spirit has control of this most volatile and intractable part of our being, that is speech, how much more susceptible to his control will the rest of our lives be? When a person's speech is Christ-exalting, God-honoring, and edifying, one can be sure the rest of his life is spiritually healthy. Not perfect, but healthy. And he's changing. James wrote in verse 5, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. That's like our tongue. All of us have that capability here. Much like the bit in the horse's mouth, the tongue, our speech, has power to control. The tongue functions as a kind of control center, having a powerful impact on behavior. James does not go into detail when he writes that the tongue boasts great things. However, it does appear that he is referring to a man's natural inclination to boast or to be self-centered or inclined to a high level of self-esteem. Unfortunately, the tongue tears down others. It destroys churches, families, marriages, and personal relationships. Again, in verses 5 and 6, it says, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire. That's what he said. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. That's our life. That's in the Nasby. And it is set on fire by hell. Remember Peter? What he said to the Lord? Not so, Lord. It was from hell. Here, the illustration of fire narrows our focus on the destructive power of hateful, false, heretical speech or just careless words. Fire has the amazing ability to reproduce itself and will burn as long as there is fuel. Fire feeds on itself, so does the tongue. In verse 6, we see the strongest statement in Scripture on the danger of the tongue. Using fire as a metaphor, four elements of the tongue's danger can be recognized in verse 6. 
The tongue is, one, a world of iniquity. In context, world refers to a system of iniquity, of evil, rebellion, lawlessness, and all other kinds of sin. And two, an evil tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the body. This system of evil speech spreads out and contaminates the life of a person. Three, it sets on fire the course of our life. Like fire, the destructive effect of evil speech expands, corrupting ourselves and everything we influence throughout the course of our life. And finally, four, the sinful tongue is set on fire by hell. The verb form indicates continuous action. The fire is continuous. The phrase, set on fire by hell, that phrase, indicates that the tongue can be Satan's tool, fulfilling his purpose to pollute, corrupt, destroy. The tongue is unbelievably dangerous and destructive. Even for Christians, I dare say. In closing, let us uh, remember what James wrote in verse 2 of our text. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, or what he says, his speech, he is a perfect man, and there is none. Able also to bridle the whole body. If he was able to do that, he wouldn't have a need for the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, James is, is, uh, is definitely saying uh, a, a truism, but there's no one that can do that. He's already told us that. A man, we, can't, uh, we can't accomplish that. The Holy Spirit has to be the one involved in it, and we have to have the Word of God and be in prayer and being, uh, being conscious of how we think about people and about situations and to... Uh, to not speak in such a way. So, in other words, we, we all sin at times in what we speak. This reinforces the truth that no one is exempt from the dangers of the tongue. No one is exempt from the destructive power of the tongue. Yet, as the Holy Spirit of God works in our lives through his word, we are being changed, and our speech shows it. And that ends, uh, I'd like to close in, in a, a short prayer, and uh, uh, I'll turn it back over to uh, the pastor. So let's go before the Lord. Dear Father in heaven, let us not be like the world in the way we use our tongue, our tongues. May we please you in our speech and be quick to confess and repent when we don't. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.